0: Hello everyone, I'm C.P. Leslie, the host of New Books in Historical Fiction, a podcast channel in the New Books Network. Today I'm speaking with Elsa Hart about City of Ink, the third of her mystery novels set in early Qing China. A friend of mine recommended Elsa Hart's Jade Dragon Mountain to me earlier this year, and as soon as I got into it I knew I wanted to interview her combination of historical fiction, unusual solutions to intriguingly mysterious puzzles, and richly evocative portrayals of early 18th century China is irresistible. But you don't have to take my word for it. You can hear it for yourself. Summer, 1711. The courier rode out of camp in the yellow haze of a dust cloud. Wearing an expression of faint puzzlement, the man to whom he had delivered a letter watched him disappear amid the plumes of golden sand, before turning and re-entering a spacious tent. Its interior was filled with a bright clutter of painted furniture, rugs, saddles, and sacks. These were all coated in a layer of cooking oil and dust, suggesting that the portable dwelling, fashioned from wool felt on a wooden frame, had not been disassembled in some time. At its center, around a blackened stove with a chimney, four men were engaged in a friendly disagreement over ingredients for a stew. Waving away their curious glances, the man crossed to his pallet, sat down, and opened the letter. As he unfolded the paper, a small square of India leather fell from within. He picked it up and examined the rune stamped on its surface. It was a symbol he had not seen in all his travels. He turned his attention to the letter, which, to his relief, was easier to decipher. It was written in Chinese and addressed to him. There is, in the capital city of China, a small bookstore, accessible through a door covered in a white curtain. At this bookstore, our customers can purchase the City Gazette, a publication that provides news not only of happenings within the city walls, but of various campaigns ranged outside of them. It is my habit to purchase this gazette, which is how I came to read, in a recent edition, an account of a banquet held for our Chinese ambassadors to the Mongols in Ordos. It contained a brief description of the storyteller who entertained them there, including, in an appeal to the whimsical appetites of capital readers, a selection of memorable details from the tales he told. Cursed clockwork, poisoned wine, a demon in the snow. Your subjects betray you, friend. Knowing your dedication to strange adventures, I write to ask for your help. If, when you have finished this letter, you are willing to undertake the task, here is what I propose. First, you must retrieve a book. As he read, the man began to smile, his eyes to kindle and glow. Winter had passed, and the dust storms of spring were giving way to summer. If he departed within the week, he would reach the imperial seat of the Chinese Empire before the leaves began to fall. And now, please join me in welcoming Elsa Hart.
1: Hi Elsa, thanks so much for agreeing to chat with me today. Thank you so much for having me. You have such a fascinating history. Tell us a bit about your past and how it led you toward novel writing.
2: Uh, well, I grew up in a few different places. My father is a journalist, and he was the foreign correspondent for U.S. News and World Report magazine's Rome office when I was born. So I was born in Rome, and we lived in Moscow for five years after that. So my earliest memories involve a lot of Russian fairy tales, Russian art, picnics in the snow. Um, and after that we moved to Virginia for a bit and then to Prague, which is where I went to high school. So in writing historical fiction I've I've really gravitated towards stories of travelers and of, of interactions between different cultures.
1: Your debut novel was J. Dragon Mountain, which appeared in twenty sixteen and is where we first meet Lidu and the man who will become his friend, Hamza. I'll ask you about them later, but could you give a brief introduction to that book and especially The City of Diane, where it takes place?
2: So, oh, Jade Dragon Mountain is a historical mystery, and it's set in China in the early 1700s. And uh, it tells the story of Li Du, who is an exiled imperial librarian on his way out of China. And by the time the reader meets him, he's really embraced that solitude of exile, and he has very little interest in human interaction. But despite this, he, he meets and briefly befriends a Jesuit astronomer who is one of the many travelers who has come to see the emperor preside over an eclipse of the sun. And when that Jesuit is murdered, the search for his killer ends up bringing Lido out of exile in, um, in more ways than one. And the book is set in, in a place called Dayan, which is actually an older name for the city of Lijiang, uh, which is a city in China. It's located in Yunnan province, which is in southwest China. And it's about as far from Beijing as you can get and still be in China. Uh, Yunnan sort of bridges the jungles of Burma and Vietnam and the icy plateaus and mountains of Tibet. And historically, Dayan was a market town and a place on the trade route by which tea traveled from the forests of Yunnan, where it was grown, and to the, the arid Tibetan plateau, where it, where it can't grow, and it was and still is very highly valued. So this old trade route was known as the Tea Horse Road, and the story is set on on that, on a big point in that trade route. So Lidu
1: and Hamza then move to the mountains, um, still on the Tea Horse Road, I think, um, in the White Mirror. Uh, again, without giving away plot spoilers, could you give us a sense of the puzzle they encounter there?
2: Yes. So the White Mirror does continue along the Tea Horse Road. It continues... We do story on the, the paths of this trade route, with trade route between China and Tibet. And it finds the traveling with a caravan of tea traders. And he's, he's deeper and higher in the mountains now. And the caravan becomes trapped by a snowstorm on a mountain pass. So the book is set up almost a little bit in the, the structure of a traditional manor house mystery. Only the manor house belongs to a Tibetan lord. And, uh, just as the snow begins to fall, a body of a man is found on an icy bridge. So we have, you know, a suspicious family in the house and suspicious travelers trapped there. Uh, and in order to figure out who the murderer is, Li Du has to confront, surprisingly to himself, uh, and I hope to the reader, <laughs> some truths about his own past. And the story involves one of the great confrontations in history, which was that between the emperor of China and the Dalai Lama at that time.
1: Which is still continuing in its modern form.
2: Yes, amazing contemporary relevance there.
1: (laughs) So what inspired City of Ink?
2: So City of Ink, the first two books are set really on the the borders of China, the very edges of its empire. And City of Ink brings Du to Beijing. And the inspiration for it really had a lot to do with Du's own story as a character. In In the first two books, he's venturing farther and farther from the center of China. But by the end of The White Mirror, he learns something about his own exile that, that turns it into a mystery to be solved. So a return home for ledu was always was always inevitable, but I was excited to bring him into an urban atmosphere and explore that different sort of mystery logistics and plot structures that that offered. Well, let's
1: talk about Lidu. I mean, he's really a wonderful character. Um, what's his backstory, as much as you want to tell us, um, and how would you describe him as a personality?
2: So, Lidu, oh, we do. Oh, dearly do. I. um When we meet, so when we meet him, he is an exile. But before that, he was a librarian working in the Forbidden City in Beijing. And we learn that his family had hopes that he would rise a little higher within the ranks of the bureaucracy, possibly, you know, becoming a magistrate. Uh, but he became a librarian in part because of the influence of his mentor, who is a man named Xu. And we also learned that Shu was the reason for Li Du's departure from Beijing. Shu uh, was found guilty of plotting against the emperor, and he was executed for his crime. And Li Du, as his close friend, was sentenced to exile. So that's that's his backstory. And it it, it took me a lot of time and, and a lot of different sources to find Li Du as a character. But he is he is inspired in part by a. An actual 17th century Chinese traveler whose name was uh, Xu Ke and his uh, travel journal actually Liu carries with him uh, in the book. And I was reading when I was in China. I was reading uh, classical Chinese poetry in English, um, beginning with these beautiful translations of of Tang dynasty dynasty poems. Um, and I, I was very moved by the language of exile in those poems. So that. Combined with these sort of journals of broadly, due to a new kind of of life for me.
1: He's very much a scholar, um, at least in my mind. Um, how do you see him? I mean, he's he seems very contained, very intellectual.
2: Um, how would you describe? Him? <laughs> it's funny. So I would describe him as as a librarian. There's so much in that word, you know. It, it was one of the very very few moments in writing fiction when a character declared something about himself to me I was I was writing a piece of dialogue very early in the process and we do was talking to someone and at that time I I had no sense of him his career background and somebody you know asked him who he was and he said I'm a librarian and uh, it it was very much him introducing himself you know to me and librarians and novels you know they just they really have this power of archetypes I always think there should be a librarian card in a tarot deck because, you know, my mind goes to the stories of Hayes or Lucian, the librarian, and, and Neil Gaiman's Sandman graphic novels, or the Ray Bradbury's The Father and Something Wicked This Way Comes, or of course, Umberto Eco's Name of the Rose. So I think dos coming from being someone who loves books is just so much, so much who he is. <laughs> librarian. I mean,
1: what connotations does that have for you?
2: I think that's, it's connected to, to his quietness and his tendency. One of the things that he struggles with as a character is that he, he can get a little lost in his own thoughts and in pages and that, and books and documents. And that's really something that he struggles with in, in City of Inc., the third book, because he, he has come back to Beijing all sort of charged up to, to investigate his own past, but he finds that the answers lie in, in papers and documents sort of lost in the, the archives and the bureaucracy of the empire. And he kind of lets himself, he has a tendency to let himself get so drawn into that that he, he forgets a little bit about people and about the importance of interacting and engaging. And that, of course, is what his, uh, his good friend Hamza helps him with.
1: Yes, let's get to Hamza. Uh, he has a very different background, a very different personality. Where does he come from? Uh, what's he like? And why do he and do click as friends, uh, despite their differences?
2: Uh, so H- Hamza's a very, a very real character for me. And my mom is actually always surprised about Hamza because she has no idea where he came from in, in my personality. But, uh, do she kind of can see. He's, he's sort of, Basically, Li Du, you know, went to law school and decided to be a librarian instead and then kind of wandered politely around to the Chinese countryside, which is essentially what I did. But, uh, but Hans is different and, you know, he, he appears as a balance to Li Du, not quite a sidekick, more of a, a friend and someone who, who approaches problems from a different perspective. And he is by profession a storyteller and That was important because I think if my books have one common theme between them, it really is storytelling. And in particular, the use of narrative to build to build empires or to on a more personal level to avoid facing problems or to to get away with murder um, or to justify murder. So I guess. It shouldn't have surprised me that a storyteller would show up in, in my head in plotting out and, and figuring out the themes of the books. And I do think Hansa acts a bit as a guide to the novels. He appears in the prologues. He exists a little bit outside of the stories. And I think he helps emphasize that it, we aren't in a, in a completely straightforward historical moment that the, the worlds of these three books are to some extent outside of time and, and, and consistent within themselves. As stories, they're crafted and, and Hamza helps keep a little bit of an awareness of that.
1: He also, I think, grounds Lee do in a way, which is fascinating because Hamza's own stories are very much, you know, folk fairy tales, um, that are not based in, uh, sort of the reality of, of everyday life.
2: Yes, I can, I completely agree. He, uh, grounds we do maintains that that human insight and a and a sense of humor, which is something that, that we do sometimes sometimes they do can be a bit a bit gloomy and serious. So I think Hamza uh jostles him out of that you know when he needs it.
1: Um the historical background of these stories is really fascinating to me, in part of because of my own uh research and writing interests, but also because it's so richly depicted. And I think probably a lot of our listeners don't know very much about um, this period in China. It's it's the beginning of the Qing dynasty, um, the Kangxi emperor. um, And there's a lot going on. Um, I'm sure we could talk about it for hours, actually. But tell us um, at least about the emperor's somewhat complicated relationship with foreigners, uh, which is an element in all three books so far. Um, who are these foreigners, and how do the imperial family and native Chinese react to them?
2: Yes, absolutely, um, and I, I agree. We could go on for hours. It's just, uh, it's just such a fascinating and and complex period in history. But so in China, in in 1708, when the book is set, as you say, it was not long after the the start of the new dynasty, the Qing dynasty, and of course it would be it would be very long, but it would prove to be. China's last so when it ends in 1911 with the Chinese revolution that's the end of thousands of years of imperial China but you know in 1708 it's it's just getting started and leading i promise to to the foreigners the brief background on that is that this this dynasty was founded by horsemen from the north beyond China's border wall who were called the manchu and they came to China they they took beijing overthrew the ruling family and declared themselves the new rulers and they called their dynasty Qing. And the emperor uh, in 1708 was only the second Qing emperor to rule and he was the Kangxi emperor. The Qing even even though they were an invading power, they had kept the traditions and much of the bureaucracy of the their predecessors intact. So in many ways Kangxi was really working hard to learn this ancient system that he had inherited and to legitimize himself in the eyes of the people his family had conquered and that's where the foreigners come in because one of the ways that he was doing that was by using technology that was brought by Jesuit missionaries in the west at this time there was growing interest and fascination with china and demand for its goods most notably its tea and its porcelain uh, but the english east india company and the other traders had nothing that china wanted in return so at this point China's borders really were essentially closed to Westerners, but the Jesuits were the exception and they were, they were allowed in. They had first come to the imperial court during the previous dynasty about a hundred years earlier. And the Kangxi had sort of, the Kangxi emperor had sort of inherited them and he found them extremely useful. In particular, their knowledge of astronomy helped him to make more accurate predictions of events like solar eclipses and this. Contributed to this effort he was making to, to establish his authority. So he liked them and I think even considered some of them personal friends, though of course there was an instability to that dynamic.
1: And not all of his subjects are equally enthralled, right?
2: Absolutely. There was a lot of resentment and competition among his, uh, Manchu advisors and shamans and, and also from his, from the Chinese bureaucracy. Competing for influence over the emperor with with the Jesuits and not liking this uh this foreign presence,
1: another element in the stories um, and you hinted at this before is that because it's a new dynasty, there are lots of supporters of the old dynasty still around, and they keep popping up in different contexts. Yes. <laughs> So could you talk about that element of it a little bit? I'm not asking you to give spoilers from the stories, but just the the general political background, shall we say?
2: Absolutely, the Qing, Qing dynasty trying to establish itself while while keeping a lot of the structure of this previous dynasty intact. So so with that dynamic comes a lot of a lot of tension. Uh, there were many outright plots to reinstate the Ming royal family. Um, by the time my books take Place. these were they were it was at the tail end of that they were pretty much trounced, but there were little ones that came up every once in a while. but one lasting effect on the the atmosphere that comes up uh, particularly in the city of inc is the the rearrangement of where people lived in Beijing. so the the nobility of the previous dynasty had lived in these beautiful fancy northern neighborhood mansions that surrounded the Forbidden City. And they had all been kicked out and moved down to the southern part of Beijing while the emperors, Manchu bannermen, had more than moved into their nice houses. Um, And the south of Beijing was considered very inferior. It was foggy and muddy. They didn't have any good prospects or views or, or sights to see. So there was certainly resentment about that and and a a cultural clash that was going on within the city still at this time
1: so that brings us to beijing which is almost a character in the novel itself i mean it's um it's setting and it's set up and all the streets and everything are um are essential elements in the story including and i didn't realize this until i read your book um that at night, for security reasons, uh, a lot of the streets were closed off. So they didn't just have walls around the city, they actually had walls within the city. Were you aware of that before you started writing?
2: I wasn't, no. It, my initial research process with the books is very eclectic, so I will know basically, you know, where I want to set the book and, and what I want to have happen in the story, but then I'm really looking for inspiration, and I certainly found it in reading in preparation for writing City of Beijing. There's a book in particular, uh, Peking Temples and, and City Life by Susan Maquin, that I, I think is where I got this from. But but yes, the there was incredible amount of control of the movement of people within the city. So there were both, there were was a wall all the way around Beijing, and then a wall separating the the northern part from the southern part. But then within those, just an enormous network of walls and and gates and doors that that closed at night um very strictly and were uh monitored by guards so essentially wherever you were when the sun set was kind of where you had to stay stay for the night uh which was both fascinating historically but but a great plot dynamic for a mystery too so as noted in the book description
1: uh and as just mentioned by you, uh, Li Du has come back to Beijing with a, a specific plan. But so by the time we meet him at the beginning of City of Ing, it's two years on and things haven't worked out quite as he expected, um, in part because of all of these documents that you mentioned. But what is his situation at the beginning of the story?
2: Yes, so we find we find Li Du working in a somewhat humble administrative position uh, in the South City. He's essentially working for a local constable. And he, uh, two years have passed since he he came back, and he wears he wears glasses now, which have been given to him by one of his his Jesuit uh, acquaintances. And so, yes, it was. I can't remember exactly when I made the decision to have that time pass, but I did. I did want to give him that new sense of struggle that he came back all sort of. Full of fire to 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 solve this mystery of his past, and then found himself, you know, getting a little bit lost in the paper trail, lost in the labyrinth. As I mentioned before, he has a, a tendency to to gravitate towards quiet, very in, internal places, and he he's a little bit directionless. By the time we we meet him,
1: and how does he get involved in this mystery? Get, sketch the setup for us.
2: So the crime in City of Ink is a double murder, and. It's the bodies of a man and a woman have been found in the black tile factory. So this factory that produces the the roof tiles, the sort of standard roof tiles that cover uh, the houses in Beijing. And the man is a relatively high-ranking official. The woman is the wife of the factory owner. So the woman's Husband is the prime suspect. It seems that it was a, a crime of passion, and because Li Du's uh, boss uh, is this crime falls within his jurisdiction, uh, you know Li Du is is brought along to investigate.
1: And if it is found to be a crime of passion, what is the significance of that legally?
2: So there there was a statute, and this is true in place at the time. It was Article Two Eighty Five that said that when a wife or a concubine commits adultery. And her husband or a close relative of her husband catches her at the place and in the act of adultery and immediately kills them both. There is the 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 crime is excusable because as long as it was done, you know, in the heat of the moment. So for this story, for City of Ink, it means that if the the husband did it, everything is pretty, the answer is pretty easy for everyone. His act is justified. Uh, He's let off the hook. It's not that, it's not too messy. So, you know, a number of characters are trying to make that fit, even though it doesn't quite.
1: And one of the reasons that that's important is because this is taking place uh, in the lead up to the imperial examinations. Um, so talk about that part of the story.
2: Yes, I love. I loved reading about these. I just, um, the, the details, the anecdotal details are just wonderful. But so the examinations, for, for any man who aspired to become an official in the bureaucracy passing the, the civil examinations was essential and these took place there were several rounds of them, a complicated process but essentially every three years in the capital and in the weeks leading up to these tests Beijing just completely transformed there were thousands of hopefuls pouring into the city they came on horseback and they'd carry these fluttering banners that identified them as as exam candidates and the inns filled up completely, the temple, guest rooms filled up, and in addition to servants and family members, the candidates brought all these anxieties and, and superstitions, and there were all these charlatans trying to sell, you know, potions to help you concentrate. But it, and part of the reason why it was so tense is you had, you know, thousands and thousands of candidates, and because of a quota system, a very limited number of them could pass. There was a base, I think, for about 200, depended on the year, but about 200. So the atmosphere is incredibly tense and competitive and uh, a good setting for emotions to run high.
1: So without specifying um, how they work uh, their way into the plot, um, there are a couple of Jesuits uh, that they do encounters in this novel as well. Uh, Father Calmet and Father Aveno. Um, who are they and how do they fit generally into the story?
2: So there are, there are two of the Jesuits living, living in Beijing and the essentially working as advisors to the emperor. But at this point, the influence of the Jesuits is waning. You know, they have, they have their church. It's, it's not very well frequented anymore. Their position is a bit unstable. And I'm not sure if I, I don't think I mentioned this earlier, but there's a lot of in, infighting in the Catholic Church over the role of the Jesuits in China. So they're in a stressful situation and Colmette, though, the the elder the older of the two, he speaks very much to the, the intellectual curiosity of the Jesuits who were in China at the time. And it's an intellectual curiosity that really survives in the letters that they wrote and that still exists and you can see, and it's very relatable and contemporary. But Avenue, without spoiling anything, speaks perhaps to a darker side of that curiosity and, and to the tensions surrounding the place of the Jesuits in the capital and, and their future there tiles, especially
1: roof tiles, (laughs) play an important part in City of Ink. Some of them are made in Beijing, others are outside the city, there are factories that specialize in different types of tiles. Um, Some of them are standard, some are produced to order. How got you interested in tiles to the point where you decided to include them in this novel?
2: It's a good question, So as I said, my writing process starts with this very uh, eclectic research. And I, I came across a description of kilns that had been moved outside of the city because of pollution complaints. And that stood out to me because, you know, it felt like reading a contemporary article about, about Beijing and the sort of, and pollution problems. Uh, so that got my attention on, on kilns. But then as I read, I, I really liked the idea of focusing on kilns in a different way than focusing on porcelain. So much of Western imagining of china is centered around its porcelain and the idea of thinking about these more industrial kilns that were producing the roof tiles that really defined the appearance of the city this this sea of roof tiles both the the plain unglazed black tiles and the glazed ones that were used more for um the ornaments and on temples. Uh, and then, of course, the beautiful ones that top the, the yellow ones, topping the forbidden city. So I think that's what drew me to, to the idea of this, yeah, this more industrial kiln structure of the city um, intrigued me. So
1: you mentioned that, the, um, that your research is very eclectic. And I totally agree with you, um, because I'm a historian who writes historical fiction and the thing that I love about doing research for a novel is that it opens up all these possibilities that I either had forgotten or didn't know about. Um And that's much more important to me than the sort of nailing down exactly how people made their buttons or whatever it was. Right. Nice. So um, it, given that yours is eclectic, where do you start? Because these settings and... um backgrounds in the novel are so beautifully realized, uh, that I, I really want listeners to hear that this is an element of the novels that they should, you know, prepare to enjoy really
2: from a lot of different directions. And for J. Dragon Mountain, unique among the three because I I a lot of the description came from what I was seeing around me. You know, wrote J J Dragon Mountain when I was living in China and my husband is a biologist and he was studying high alpine plants on the real jade dragon snow mountain. And we were living in Lijiang, the city at its base. So I was looking up at the, at the mountain every day and seeing its changing moods and that the shape of it that has changed very little over 400 years and the movement of the mists through its valleys. Uh, it was almost like time travel. But in addition, uh, specific to Lijiang as a city, Lijiang was a pretty much very small contemporary Chinese city. But then in 1996, there was an earthquake that did terrible damage, almost leveled it. And the decision was made after that, instead of rebuilding it in a contemporary style, to rebuild it in a traditional old style. So it is now a UNESCO World Heritage Site and a major tourist destination, particularly for domestic tourism in China. So in Lijiang, there is a full replica of the Mu mansion. And if I if I got up early enough, you know, before the tour buses came in sort of sneakers and with cameras, it really felt like I could just take notes as if I had gone back in the past on the architecture and the cobblestones and the way the sunlight hit the rooftops. Um, so that was eerie way to, to research the first book. But then, of course, there was a lot of academic research, and that took place mostly in university libraries when we were back in the US for holidays and also in museums I took a huge amount of my research in museums my parents were living in Washington DC so the Freer and Sackler were a great place to go to you know find objects that I could place place in the text
1: and what would you like readers to take away from uh, your three novels so far but especially City of
2: England? I think much of my focus when I talk about the books was on the the geographical and the, the historical context for the novels And although I I enjoy research so much, the the books are are more mysteries than they are histories, I think. And what I look for when I'm poring over these these nonfiction accounts are the elements that really lie at the heart of mystery, glittering wealth and scorned love and and the emotions that they inspire, the fear and greed and desire for revenge, those, those motives. So the world my characters inhabit doesn't operate according to the same rules that, you know, govern our reality or the reality of, of history. But um that said, I'm also conscious of and I hope the books kind of call attention to the reality of history being something we encounter through accounts given by those who chose to write things down. So the, the Jesuit crafting his letter to Rome, or the emperor dictating an edict, or the traveler taking notes about a route. Um they were all written for an audience. And and this gets back to the, the theme that found its way into my books, that these plots really turn on understanding that there's a, a storyteller behind every story, whether it's an emperor controlling the narrative of his empire, or an author constructing a novel, or a um, murderer justifying a crime. So I do think it's one of the reasons that a librarian and a storyteller ended up as my protagonists. So it's really been a, a pleasure to travel with them and, and to share some of their story uh, in our conversation today.
1: Are you working on another Lidu novel now?
2: I am deep into my fourth novel, which is a, a shift away from Lidu and from China, but it does take place in the same period, in the, the early 18th century. It's set in, in London, and it's specifically in the, the community of collectors who were building what... Are sometimes called uh, referred to as cabinets of curiosities. So I'm so drawn to the in between times in history, and this is one of them. You know, England on the brink of the scientific revolution, but at this point, you know, Newton is still really interested in alchemy. And I'm introducing uh, two new detectives, uh, Cecily Kay, who's a plant enthusiast, and Mekin Barlow, who's a botanical illustrator. So they're these they're navigating this world of of obsessive collectors. And and for fans of J. Dragon Mountain, there is a a cameo appearance from a character in Jade Dragon Mountain who, who they will recognize.
1: Okay. <laughs> I have my theories about who that might be. Um, <laughs> I will look forward to seeing that novel, but I do hope we haven't seen The Last of the Do and Hamza. I
2: hope, I hope not too. I've, I do have more stories in mind for them as well.
1: Thank you so much for sharing your time with us, Elsa. It's been a pleasure talking with you. Thank you so much
2: for having me. Pleasure for me too.
0: And thank you for listening to our podcast. Once again, I'm C.P. Leslie, the host of New Books in Historical Fiction, a podcast channel in the New Books Network. And today I've been talking with Elsa Hart about City of Ink. Find out more about her at www.elsahart.com. Like us on Facebook, search for NB Historical Fiction, and follow us on Twitter at NewBooksHistFic. If you do, you'll see each time we post a new interview. You can find out more about me and my books at www.cplesley.com, where I upload expanded posts about the interviews and in general discuss history, historical fiction, and the rapidly changing publishing industry. Goodbye until my next conversation about historical fiction on the New Books Network.